John 1, 6 through 18. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we all have received grace in place of grace already given. For for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Amen. Let's stand one more time. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the gospel of John. That the gospel writer declared Jesus in his glory and nature. And as we are here in this season of Advent, pausing to remember and anticipate Christ who came and will come again, we ask now, Father, by the Holy Spirit, that the Scriptures would become alive to our hearts, that we would be instructed by them, and that we would learn more and more about the person and work of Jesus Christ. So now, Father, we are continuing to just invite you into this space to ask for your help, for the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, that the seed of your word would be sown into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen, 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 amen. Hey, before you sit down, I want you to turn to somebody, and I just want you to say, glory. Just say glory. We're going to talk about it. You'll figure out why. But just, everybody got to do it, even those of you who don't typically participate. Turn around to somebody and say, glory. Glory. You, say, you need to say like that, Glory. And then once you've done that, you can have a seat. It's good to learn how to say a good glory every once in a while up in the cha-cha. We are uh, continuing our Advent series that we started last week. And simultaneously, we are beginning our series through the Gospel of John, which will take several months. Um, Last week, we talked specifically and primarily about Jesus, our light. And this morning, we are going to focus on Jesus as the glory of the Father. And that's why I had you turn and say, glory. Um, We're going to look at the glory that came by Jesus as he was the glory of the Father. And so if I were to just ask you, how would you define glory? I'm curious as to what you would say. If you're going to define the word glory, you might say the shininess of God, the beauty of God, or awe, wonder, fear. 
I don't know what adjectives you would use, but, but the description of glory is actually uh, relatively important for those of us who follow the Lord because the glory of God is all over the scriptures. And it's an important subject that sometimes we don't have language for. There are some things that you have to see rather than say. And glory is something that you mostly have to see. And having glory, the glory of God repeatedly pointed to you, this is glory, this is glory, this is glory. You start to to get a, a vision or a theology or eyes to see the glory of God. There are some words that I could say, and they're relatively easy to describe. Like my favorite word, or one of, shouldn't be my favorite word, but one of my favorite words, burrito. <laughs> if, if you were like, Brian, describe burrito. I'm like, I gotcha. Fluffy flour tortilla, refried beans, Spanish rice, carne asada, hot off the grill, guacamole, pico de gallo, and some cholula on the side. And now we're talking burrito. And I can describe it to you. I could show you pictures. I probably got one on my phone. Um, <laughs> I could even go and get you a sample and say, taste the glory, taste the burrito, right? It'd be relatively easy for me to, to get the concept of burrito across because there's all kinds of language and image and, and concept for that. But when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about something that's transcendent, something that's infinite, non-material, and spiritual. And so the thing we want to do this morning as we talk about Jesus as the glory of the Father is I essentially want us to start pointing at things and saying, this is glory. This is glory. This is glory. And there are things that I believe the Bible declares to us that we can see that declare the glory of God. And again, we go back to verse 14 of the text that Georgia read for us so wonderfully. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now notice, we have seen his what? You didn't say it right. His what? His glory, right? We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. And so I really want to set us into what I would just call a theology of glory this morning. Um, one of the places that we would want to go for this to, to start off is um, to that great scene in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah has what I called the throne room experience. I think it's important that periodically in our lives, as many times as, as humanly possible, we get a throne room experience. But you remember what happens to Isaiah for five chapters in the, the start of the prophecy, he's declaring woe to everybody in the nation. Woe to you for this, and woe to you for that, and woe to you, and woe to you, and woe to you, and woe to you. And for five chapters, it's woe, 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 woe. And then chapter six comes. And Isaiah says, it was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And, and as he was seeing this image of God, he, he saw those winged seraphim. And they were crying out three times, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Right? <laughs> Good, you're starting to get it. Um, one of the things we learn from that is God is holy and His glory fills the earth. That is the glory of God 
is the manifest beauty of His holiness. So if I was going to point and you were to say, what's glory? I would say, it's a holy God. The manifest beauty of the holiness of God is glory. Seeing God in His holiness. And so Isaiah sees this scene and remember, he then after that throne room experience, he doesn't say, woe to you nations. He says, woe to me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And he's confronted with his own sinfulness. And there's something about the holiness and the glory of God, the beauty of God, that, that we begin to, to understand a little bit about what glory is. It's the manifest beauty of the holiness of God. You know, one of the things about God is that He is holy. And, and when you think holy, don't think prudish. Don't think legalism. Don't think religion. Think other. Think different. Think set apart. Think everything you desire is in holy. But it's pure and it's fierce, the holiness of God. But it's wonderful and beautiful and it's attached to glory. The psalmist later, though, would go on to say in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And so if we're on this glory mission to point out glory, there it is and there it is and there it is. We see the holiness of God is glory. Then we see that, that the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. It's as if God is saying, hey, just look up. That cloud, that bright blue sky, the sun in all its fullness as it rises and as it sets a dark night with a full moon, the stars, the galaxies, the cosmos, the planets, that's glory. It's glory. It's what I made. And so, so maybe another layer of glory could be said this way. The glory of God is seen in the beauty of what he has made. One of the, one of the ways you can worship, as long as you know who made it, so you're not worshiping it, but being in creation. Just go hang out with Roger and Annette Moore. He just came back from some crazy trip, just spending time out in glory, right? Just seeing what God has made, penguins and plant life and just a, a kind of a radical trip. But, but there is something about just being in the presence of the things that God has made. And he says, look up to the heavens. They tell a story of glory. God is saying, I did that to show myself to you so that you can understand. I mean, I don't know about you, but there's nothing like a starlit night without competing city lights to just breathe in and breathe out. When it's just like, you know, 75 degrees and it's not humid and it's a summer night and the night is dark and maybe there's just a little glowing fire and you just step out maybe by a lake and just look up and it just, it's glorious. I don't have another word for it, Right? And the psalmist says, Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And so, so we point to the heavens, we point to what God has made, we, we point to the holiness of God, but then we come to our text here this morning, and again, we see that John, the gospel writer, says that the glory of God is displayed in the Son. Again, verse 14, we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, you have to remember something about John. When he declares, look at verse 14 again, we have seen his glory. What is John talking about? Well, well, he's probably talking about several things. I mean, he got to hang out with Jesus. But John was one of only three human beings to be alive on the mountain when Jesus was transfigured in all of his glory. 
Remember that story? Told in Matthew chapter 17 and Luke chapter 9. Um, It describes what happens on this mountain as it says that as Jesus was transfigured, Peter, James, and John were up there with Jesus. It says that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as the light. And on that mountain, as Jesus is transfigured, it's as if the glory that was on the inside, as Isaiah 52 tells us about Jesus, that he was not comely to look upon. There was nothing about his physical appearance that that would draw you to him. But inside of Jesus was the divine, cloaked in human, normal, everyday Joe's skin. But Jesus had the glory on the inside. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, Mount Hermon probably, the glory that was on the inside came from the out. And then he began to shine brightly. And Peter, James, and John, the Bible says they were asleep while this is all happening. And on that mountain appear Moses and Elijah. And Luke tells us in Luke chapter 9, verse 32, Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they came, became, they became fully awake. Could you imagine that? You fell asleep on a mountain, you're camping, you wake up, and they saw Jesus in his glory and the two men standing with him. And then Peter, as was his custom, when in doubt, say something, just says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Let's build three booths, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and then a cloud from heaven hovers over Peter. And if you, if you have a friend that when they open their mouth, clouds start forming over their head, you might want to back away from them. And the cloud comes over his head and God speaks audibly and says, this is my beloved son, hear him. And after that said, it says, there was no man except Jesus only. And so there's this 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 sense of glory that comes from Jesus. And the Bible declares that Jesus is the glory of God revealed. You might jot this down if you like to take notes. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says about Jesus, the Son is the image of the invisible God. The Bible says that we have not been able to see God with natural eyes, but we can see God in the person of Jesus. He is the image of the God who is invisible. Colossians 1.15. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Jesus is the glory of the Father. And Advent is primarily a time that we see the glory of God breaking out, that we see a tangible presence of the glory of God. And, and Advent is a time where we're forced to ask a question. Remember, we talked about this last week. The word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus. And Adventus just means coming. And so if someone just comes to you and says, coming, coming, something's coming, someone's coming, it's coming, he's coming, 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 you're starting to ask the question, well, who's coming? Well, God is coming. Well, what will, he, what will he be like? What, what, what should we expect? And Jesus shows us what God is like. He is the radiance of the Father. He is the glory of the Father. And theologians have come up with some terminology when it comes to the biblical doctrine of the glory of God. And one term that they've used or they've come up with is the term omnipresence. How many of y'all have heard the word omnipresence. And so in theology, there are three omnis, omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient. God knows everything. God is all present, and uh, God is all power, right? Omnipotent, omniscient, uh, omnipresent. Well, the omnipresence of God is essentially saying that God is everywhere, always in his fullness. So God never shows up. You know, I mean, I understand that we pray, God would just show up this morning, 
And people say things, man, I was at church and we were worshiping and hands were lifted and we were praying and God just showed up. Well, not really. He was there, but I understand what you're saying. And we'll talk about that part of glory in just a moment. But omnipresence says that God is simultaneously here in Cary, North Carolina, in this theater with us. He's also with our family in Oregon. He's on Pluto. He's in China. He's in a remote village in the South Pacific, Vanuatu. He's everywhere at all times in his fullness. That's omnipresence. That's glory. That, that is the, the, the beauty and the glory of God. But theologians have also come up with another way to describe the glory and the presence of God, which they call special presence or manifest presence, which is just simply the manifest presence of God is God revealing himself in such a way that his glory, attributes, and splendor are felt, experienced, or seen. And this is what happened in the incarnation. Special presence, manifest presence, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I like how Eugene Peterson put it. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> God moved in. The, the special presence of God. And there are times when, when we, we would say something like heaven meets earth. When we begin to experience the more of God. We were singing a lot about God, we want more. What, what we're saying is we, don't, we, we want more of your presence, but, but we know that you're fully here. So we get that. God is here in his fullness right now. How many believe that God is here in his fullness right now? We're not looking or waiting like, God, when are you going to show up? He's like, I've been here. I'm here. I was here when, before you got here. I'll be here after you leave. The glory of the Lord fills the earth, right? The glory of the Lord is everywhere in all places. And yet when we talk about the presence and glory of God, what we're saying is there are times when, when, when God manifests himself. He does, so, he does so in the person of Jesus, but there are also times in the time-space continuum where we just sense the weighty presence of the Lord. Anybody know what I'm talking about? All right. Glory. And in Jesus, we see the glory of God, and so the scriptures have sort of what I would call a theology of glory, and there are several words, because the Bible, how many know the Bible wasn't written in English? So sometimes you've got to go to a different language, right? Sometimes you've got to be like, we've got one word for glory in English, but there's many words in the original biblical languages. The Bible is written in primarily three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And in the Hebrew language, there's a word for glory, which is the word kavod. Or how's it pronounced? Probably Asher could do better. Kavod, 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 right? When you think about the kavod of God, just think uh, heaviness, weight, the weighty presence of God, the felt presence of God, the kavod of God. And there's so many times in the Old Testament we'll talk about where the presence of God was felt. It wasn't just intellectual like, oh yeah, like God's here, omnipresence, right? Yeah, you all believe he's here right now. Yes, we do. No, no, Kabbat is we felt him. He flattened us. God was here and we knew it. Special presence, manifest presence. God just put his hand out and there we were under the weighty presence of the beauty and the glory of God. The Greek language has a word for glory, which is the word doxa. And this word doxa is, is simply to say splendor or brightness. The ancient rabbis, though, they used a word to describe the glory of God, which is a word you may be familiar with, and it's just the word shekinah. I mean, familiar with the shekinah glory of God, the shekinah glory of God. Um, it's the dwelling or the settling of the divine presence of God. 
It was the Shekinah glory that led Israel through the wilderness. Fiery pillar at night, the cloud by day. Exodus chapter 13, the Shekinah glory, the, the, the dwelling or the settling of the divine presence of God. The Shekinah glory appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai. There was a time in Moses' journey in Exodus 33 where he cried out for the Shekinah. Remember, he, as he's about to go into the promised land and things are kind of wonky with the nation of Israel and, and God says, I'm not going to go with you into the land and, and just go in, I'll, I'll bless you, but I'm not going to go with you. And, and, and Moses says, Lord, if you're not going to go with us, I don't even want to go that other side of Jordan. And then he cries out for Shekinah. He says, show me your glory, Lord. That's a tall order. No man can see God and live. And, and Moses dared to say, God, I want to see your glory. And God said to Moses, Moses, no man can see me and live. But I'm going to make a place for you, Moses. He said, there is a place by me. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. And I'm going to, as I pass by, I'll put my hand over the rock. So you just imagine Moses in the cleft of this rock, just knowing I'm about to have a glory moment. And God says, I'm going to put my hand over it because I'd kill you if you saw me, and then I'm just going to let my glory pass by this rock, and then I'm going to remove my hand, and you can see my back parts, my afterglow, my pixie dust kind of stuff, right? You're going to see, and, and, and from that, Moses had a glory experience just seeing the back parts of God, the, the trail of his glory and beauty. And Moses was a man whom the Bible says, there was not a man like Moses, never a man like Moses, whom the Lord spoke to face to face. He had a heart. He said, God, I, I want you. I want your face. I want your presence. I want your glory. I want to know you. And, and, and the, the presence of God had been so fully experienced by Moses that when he came down from his encounter with the Almighty on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, his face was glowing and he didn't even know it. We call it the Moglo. You know, sometimes people come back from church or reading their devotions and they got the Moglo. He's like, man, you got a Moglo going on. You've just been in the presence of Shekinah, right? Glory. <laughs> and, uh, and Moses comes down from the mountain. And, and uh, the Bible says he actually put a veil on, not to be humble and say, I don't want you to see how much Shekinah I've been in the presence of, but actually to hide the fact that the glory was fading. The Bible sort of tattles on Moses in that. Um, the, the Shekinah glory of God is also that presence, that weighty kabod that filled the tabernacle. You remember the, the tent in the wilderness where Israel would go to worship? Well, there was a place inside of the inner sanctuary, inside the tent, that only the high priest could go once a year in the Holy of Holies that God said, I'm going to be there over the mercy seat. And everyone in Israel was aware that inside that tent is God. If you go past the outer court and into the inner court and past the veil into the Holy of Holies, God is there in the Shekinah presence of God followed Israel through the wilderness. And then later, God's Shekinah, His glory, filled the temple that Solomon built in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 14. The glory of the Lord so filled that house, the smoke of the Lord's glory so filled the house, it says the priest could not even stand up. They were supposed to stand up and light you know, the candelabra and put the bread and the incense, be lit and all that. They were trying to do their priestly work, but God's presence was so thick on the floor. How many of y'all would like a little bit of that, right? Just some Shekinah up in the house, right? Just going to do what you, you know, just imagine like if that happened here at church, like, you know, the, the ladies are out there trying to do stuff for the communion table and boom, flat, can't even put the communion, just God's presence is here. Alex is up here trying to sing 
Give us more. Poof, can't even, you know, just <laughs> weighty presence of the Holy One, God. It happened in Israel. Second Chronicles 5.14, the priests were overcome. And so there's this story from the very beginning of glory, glory, glory. God saying, I want to be near my people. Glory, glory, Shekinah, Kabod, Daksa, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you until a lot of sexual immorality and idolatry and rebellion and spiritual harlotry in Israel. Ezekiel said, Chapter 10, verse 18. One of the most heartbreaking passages in the old, Ezekiel 10, 18, the glory of the Lord departed from the temple. Ezekiel could have eyes to see in the Spirit, and he watched God walk out of the temple. Almost to say, if y'all are going to live like this, I'm out. Can you imagine being Ezekiel? Because I'm sure they kept on having church, temple worship after that, but there was no glory. God said, you're going to do that I'm removing my presence. I'm out. So he saw the glory of the Lord leave the temple. For 600 years, Israel was a people without a glory. Without the glory of God. I don't want to live without the glory of God. That's why sin is so terrible. It's not just that God said don't do it. It just it so grieves God that he can't bless us in that space. He forgives us. He loves us. But there's something about the presence of God that's so holy Something about the presence of God that's so transcendent. And so the glory of God departs from the temple. And it's, it's the, the word in Hebrew, Ichabod. You ever heard that word, Ichabod? It means the glory is gone. No more glory. I don't want to live like that, y'all. If, if there's anything in my life that God would say, yeah, my glory's not there for that, I'm like, get it out, God. I dare do whatever I got to do to get glory into my life. But the beautiful thing about the story is for all these years from Ezekiel watching glory leave the temple, for 600 years, no glory, until Luke chapter 2. And in Luke chapter 2, this great piece of scripture, Luke chapter 2, verse 9, at the announcement of the shepherd, to the shepherds of the Christ's birth, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and, and glory was returning to Israel. Jesus was coming. God was going to manifest himself, and glory that had left was now come, and he's here to stay. He doesn't leave anymore like that. The glory of the Lord returned to the people of God. And glory is what the human heart longs for. Something deeper weightier, transcendent. Your heart is longing for the glory of God. The American Christmas tradition, I believe in some, in some realms, creates, if not done correctly, a glory crisis. I read a statistic that says that this year, 2017, the average American is going to spend approximately $1,000 buying Christmas presents. Based on the cost of living in the United States, though, if, if the average uh, Christian or American spends $1,000 on Christmas presents, um, we don't make the kind of money that we should be spending that kind of money. Most Americans, 38% uh, of Americans, workers today, will make them less than $20,000 a year. 71% of American workers make less than $50,000 a year. And here's how that breaks out in real terms. And, and, and it, hopefully this will make sense why I'm talking about this in just a moment. Um, but just in Wake County, I did some research in Wake County. For a single adult in Wake County to be at a living wage. And a living wage is just that 
You can, you can get health care. Um, you can you have transportation. You have housing and food. We're not talking about bling or cool clothes. You have the basics in Wake County. You have to make for just a single person, and that's probably sharing a room with 50 roommates or whatever you have to do. You have to make $11.30 an hour, which is $21,696 a year. And 38% of American workers don't even make that. In Wake County, for a single mother or parent, and whatever the case might be, and this is a very common scenario, one thing, y'all, I'm just a side note, we got to look after the single moms. That's a tough thing to do. The single parenting is just tough. But for a single parent to support just one child, it's a very common scenario, they need to make $23.25 an hour. You know they'll spend more in childcare than they will on food to feed the kid? $23.25 an hour, that's $44,640 a year. Just to be at a livable wage. Poverty wage in Wake County, at Wake County, is $9 an hour. That's poverty level. You know, minimum wage is $7.25 in North Carolina. That puts someone at $3,000 a year less than what they need to live. There are hungry children in North Carolina. I know we care about the hungry people abroad, and statistics say that um, it, it, you know, across the globe that the average, in the average country, the, you know, people live off less than $2 a day. But even in our own state, people are hungry. Kids are hungry. Things shouldn't be this way. We should not be paying people $7.25 an hour. If you own a company, be good to people. If you can pay people better, pay them better. It's a, it's, a, it's a sad crisis. And so that said, according to the wage calculator, to live in Wake County, a family of five, it's going to cost you over $74,000 a year in an annual salary just to be at a livable wage to take care of your kids and not buy them an iPhone, not buy them the cool Nike shoes, just to make a living here. And the reason I bring that up is I read this article in Charisma Magazine and it just reminded me that we've got a problem. This article was published about our economy and our holiday spending and how there's this crisis going on that maybe you're aware of. Without a doubt, most American families should not be spending hundreds of dollars a year on Christmas gifts. Can't afford it. At the income levels that we just mentioned, most American families are just barely surviving. But once again this year, millions upon millions of Americans will flock to the malls and big box stores in a desperate attempt to make themselves happy. Sadly, these efforts will be in vain. In fact, statistically, Christmas is the unhappiest season of the year. The suicide rate spikes to the highest level of the year during the holidays. 45% of all Americans report that they dread the Christmas season. The following is an excerpt from Psychology Today, a Psychology Today article. We are told that Christmas, for Christians, should be the happiest time of year, an opportunity to be joyful and grateful with family, friends, and colleagues. Yet according to the National Institute of Health, Christmas is the time of year that people experience the highest incidence of depression. Hospitals and police forces report the highest incidences of suicide and attempted suicide. Psychiatrists, psychologists, and other mental health professionals report a significant increase in patients complaining about depression. One North American survey reported that 45% of respondents dreaded the festive season. 
In recent years, an increasing number of Americans have given up the tradition of Christmas gifts entirely. Many of them that I know, as the author writes, seem quite happy to have done so. Of course, most people are still quite satisfied with the status quo, and there are many that will get angry with you if you dare to suggest that the, American, the way Americans celebrate Christmas has gotten way out of hand. But it shouldn't alarm us that for most Americans, the biggest holiday of the year is all about the stuff they're going to buy and the stuff they're going to give and the stuff they're going to get. As a society, we're obsessed with things, but things are never going to make us happy. Perhaps we should all take some time to reflect on the traditions we choose to participate in and what they really mean to us during this holiday. Now, I don't mean to sound like an Ebenezer Scrooge or something, but it's really sad the what we have made Christmas. We should know better. Other people may not know better. We should know better. And, and, and what, I, what I, I believe that we see here is this is a glory crisis. We're spending money we don't have in search of happiness and longings to be fulfilled, to appease our cultural expectations and all of this. And yet there is this ultimate letdown. I mean, does anybody know what I'm talking about? The, the post-Christmas gift letdown? Like, if, especially the year that you kind of went nuts. I mean, I experienced this even as a kid, but I experience it more now as a parent. Because this, is, this can be, for some of you, a very frenzied time of year. You're running around looking for the gifts to get all the people that you're supposed to buy for, trying to figure out where you're going to find the money to pay for it all, hoping that they, they like what you got them, that you get them the perfect gift. So you spend all this money, there's all this anticipation, the kids are there counting their Christmas presents, which I think is ridiculous, and, but they can't help it, right? Because we're feeding into this fire of consumerism, idolatry, and we're going bankrupt doing it. And then Christmas morning comes and, and, and the kids tear into the presents and you might get one squill of delight from the younger ones. The teenagers don't react very much anymore. And then it's all said and done and they're kind of playing with their stuff and looking at their stuff. And there's just, I don't know, I've sat back many a Christmas and thought, I just feel empty, feel dissatisfied. Christmas did not meet my expectations. And the Bible was very, very clear that, that, that these kinds of pursuits are never going to fill your soul. Now, I'm not saying boycott Christmas, I'm just saying, don't lose your mind on Christmas. I mean, don't, don't be miserable another Christmas. You know, I was telling my wife, I just dread this time of year. I hate that I do. I don't like the consumerism. I don't like malls. I'm sorry if you do. I don't. I don't like greed and the, the, the kind of the spirit that that, that 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 creates. And I think, oh, man, like... I could get so grouchy this time of year, you know, and I'm just like, God, protect my kids from me, you know, just turning into a total lame grouch. And, and I realize on one level, it's like holy, righteous indignation. On the other end, it's just grumpiness, right? And stress. I don't like the stress of it. Um, but I think that really the, the, the big idea is that, you know, we're always trying to climb these mountains to find glory. And Christmas is a time that makes us think that there's going to be glory there. But then somehow we do this year after year and we miss the glory of the Father in Jesus. 
And we're looking for glory that doesn't appear. And once again, our expectations are disappointed. And a guy wrote a whole book about this called Ecclesiastes. Ever read it? He tried everything. Yeah, everything. We don't even know women, wine, parties, uh, building crazy fountains, having crazy parties with apes and peacocks and wine flowing like rivers and women. And, you know, he tried wisdom. He tried gardens. He tried it all. And he kept saying the whole time, Vanity, vanity, all his vanities. And I mean, he had it in abundance. He had it in spades. I mean, he, he said, I'm going to do this and I'm going to go all the way because he could. He had all the money. And he climbs up to each of these mountains and he shouts down from the top of each mountain he got on top of and shouts down to us and saying, it's not going to be what you think it is if you get here. So quit climbing this mountain. Turn back. Cl- climb the glory mountain. Go to the glory mountain. Find other glory because this isn't it. And we keep climbing the same stupid mountain Solomon told us not to climb. He was saying, turn back, turn back. You're going to be sadly disappointed if you ever get on top of it. The thing is, most of us will never get on top of the mountain the way Solomon did. So there'll always be just another layer, experience, pleasure, joy, whatever layer that we think we can climb up to. And at the end of the day, read about someone who's already been there and turn back and say, Father, this year, I just want your glory. Show me your glory, Lord. I want to do Christmas differently this year. I really want the kabod, the shekinah, the doxa, the glory of God, if, if I were to look back down the annals of time and look at the Christmas of 2017, sure, I bought my kids some things and maybe my wife got something and maybe I got something, but uh, at the end of the day, I don't even remember what we got. I can't remember what I got last year for Christmas or what I bought. It's just all rubbish. We spent a lot of money and I don't know where it is. But if, if at 2017, I just experienced the glory of God, oh man, my heart longs for that. C.S. Lewis said, In mere Christianity, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. I think that's why Jesus came the way he did. Born in a very poor family, in a very poor little community, a very uninfluential family, town. Because what he wanted to show us is glory is different than you think. It isn't all the things you call glory. I, Jesus would say, am the glory of my Father. I got no money. And why did people follow Jesus? Well, the Bible says, in him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines into the darkness, and the darkness can't overcome it. But he said things when people was like, I want to follow you. He's like, so let me just kind of let you know, I'm going to die. You're going to be persecuted. I don't have a home right now, and neither will you. And I got nothing. You won't get a paycheck. You're not going to get anything nice. And it's going to end in death. And they said, glory, I'm following you. <laughs> Crazy. Who pitches that in evangelism? I, never, I don't hear many evangelistic speeches that way. Because what was Jesus saying? He's saying there's something else in the picture here. It's this transcendent beauty. And when they saw Jesus, they said, that's the man with the presence. That's the one who carries the glory. And I don't care if he's homeless and he promises death and trial and persecution. I'm following him because there's something transcendent, something more, something deep, something weighty. You know what I'm talking about? Just weighty. 
The Celtic Christians used to speak of what they called the thin places. A place where they said heaven and earth are closer. They actually had certain places that they called thin places. Uh, the, The Celtic saying was the distance between heaven and earth is about three feet, but in the thin places it gets much closer. It's it's as if the veil between what is real and weighty in Kabod and Shekinah starts to to kind of thin out. You know, and then I was thinking about that. I thought, is that theologically correct? Are there thin places anymore? Was there ever a thin place? I mean, you know, we have the tabernacle and the temple, and, and yet the New Testament seems to say the Most High doesn't dwell in temples made with men's hands anymore. God used to be in the thin places, but now He's in people. He's in you like a temple of the Holy Spirit. So the thin place is you. And so so I'm not sure that there are thin places. I understand there are times even in meetings where, you know, I would just say this was a thin place. There was a sense of manifest special presence of God. It was just God was tangibly real to us here. It's beautiful. But I'm not so much a thin places, but I am into thin practices. It's not dieting. Um, And I I just want to lay out for Advent season that we consider things that we could do this year to avoid a miserable Christmas. Some of you guys think, man, you are such a grump. Like, seriously, I love Christmas. I love presents. Uh, If you do, that's great. But there are other things you should be liking too about this time of year, namely Jesus. Um, So I'm going to suggest a few things. Glory practices that I think we can lean into this year to invite the weightiness of God. Number one, I would just encourage you to continue to press into the daily practice we talked about of, um, of examine, or excuse me, I think the first one was Advent readings. Um, as as uh, Adam was talking about, we have daily readings for Advent, and so if you didn't get an Advent calendar, just a, just a meditation on the daily readings. Like, what is God saying? There are short passages that you can read. Number two, pressing into the daily examine practice, reflection, and listening prayer. Um, how many of you guys are still doing that? It's, I know it, I mean, you, I'm, you may be at 80% or 75%, but I'd say even if you feel like, man, I, like I'm probably at 50% of like the, since we started till now, fine, pick it up tomorrow, pick it up tonight. I mean, great, you know, just keep, keep at it. Um, but I would say that's a way to, to just practice bringing glory into your life. Um, and then the other, I would say, spend less and find a place to give. And so I'm going to put it up on the city, but I just, I was doing some Google searching about places that we could potentially give. Um, so the International Justice Mission, um, every year around Christmas time, does what they call the Advent Conspiracy. And they encourage people to spend a percentage less, is it 20% less or something like that? They say, just not, not don't get Christmas presents, but, but give meaningful gifts, like make something or be really thoughtful and intentional about the kind of gifts you give, but then also spend less and give this time of year to just give to, you know, justice in the world. So you could participate in the International Justice Mission. Uh, locally, there's what they call Safe Child, and it's basically an organization that helps prevent child abuse in Wake County. Right here in our city where children are being abused, is there anything more tender to God's heart than defending the helpless? So help support Safe Child. Um, or the Ronald McDonald House in North Carolina. There are seven houses in North Carolina where 
uh, parents with chronically sick and ill children go to find comfort and solace. And so you could support one of the seven Ronald McDonald houses in the state of North Carolina. There's also another ministry called Urban Ministries, which helps feed hungry families in Wake County. Because um, as we said, people, I mean, if the, if the minimum wage is $7.25, people are just hurting. And this is a very high pressure time of year. Um, so I would, I, would, I would encourage us as one of our practices, I'm going to post all this, um, and you, you know, look into them, and if you've got your own groove, great. But I would just say spend less, find a place to give. Number four, find a place to serve. Um, I have a whole list up here of potential opportunities, of places you could volunteer. Um, Christmas toy giveaway, Genesis home, gift wrapping, helping hand mission, holiday groceries to go, hugs for the holidays, uh, just all kinds of stuff. Meals on Wheels, Senior Santa program. Um, lots of places that you could go and actually use your life for something more than just feeding consumerism. Um, and then number five, have a Christmas celebration with your community group. I mean, I'm sure a lot of you are planning to do that, but I do think, like, allow community to be a part of, of this season where it's about people and love and generosity and kindness. And um, maybe there are people in your neighborhood or someone at our church that you know, I, I bet they're going to have a rough Christmas. They, I know they don't have very much money. And, I, man, I just want to bless bomb them. I'm just going to spend less on me, and I'm going to bless someone in my neighborhood, someone in my church. Um, and then finally, um, I would just say join us for our Christmas Eve service. We're having a family gathering where we're just going to center in on, on what this is all about um, this year. But, but the, the point is, is that in order to in, in experience the glory of God, we have got to war against selfishness. We've got to war against selfishness in ourselves and in our children um, so that we don't get caught up in the shallow practices of consumer Christianity and miss the glory of Advent in Jesus. So I just say, may you be of good cheer this year, even if this time of year you would fall into the category of someone who's financially strapped and super discouraged. Like this, this time of year, when it rolls up on you, it's, maybe it's not just the financial stress, it's just you know that your family's not a happy family and there's just all these weights and, and all these expectations that, you know, you hear about other families and it's like they're laughing and they're all wearing ugly Christmas sweaters and getting all these great gifts sitting around the table. And you think, my family's so sad. I, mean, what? I don't even want to see my family. I, I don't look forward to this time of year. And all these, these cultural expectations, I would say, if we could just push that aside for a second and say it's not about that. I mean, you know that. You didn't come to church because you thought it was about Santa and the tree. But... But, you know, I mean, like, really, like, this is about the glory of God. Jesus, the glory of the Father. And we got to do something different if we're going to be a people that really experience the glory. Giving meaningful things to people in need, that is doxa, weighty, kabod, shekinah. I just feel God just shines on that kind of stuff. You feel that, oh, God, thank you. When you're helping, assisting, giving, growing, being generous, Talk to Brian Gower. Throw a generosity dinner. You know, I mean, I know a lot of community groups are trying to think about it, but don't just keep thinking about it. Do one for crying out loud. Throw a generosity dinner, raise a bunch of money, and give it away. Give away your misery. Give away your selfishness. Give away the thing that weighs you down this time of year. Don't, don't experience that post-Christmas blah, but, but experience the glory of God. The, the Christmas morning would be a time of worship, and beauty, 
and transcendence, not another time for more stuff we don't need. Amen? Are you guys with me on this? Okay, let's stand.